make a comment or pose a question to one of our Yeah, good yeah. Hi, I'm uh, Paul Davis, University of Oxford. Um, I'm quite sympathetic to quite a lot of what was said just now, but it seems to me there is a bit of a puzzle here. Um, David mentioned that one of the reasons we might want to look again at the takeover code was that the composition of the shareholding body has changed between the 50s and now. And he pointed to the departure of individuals and the arrival of institutions. Um, and you might think that that change actually supports the way in which the code was formulated in the 50s, because what you've got are the departure of individuals uh, who presumably have relatively short-term horizons, and the arrival of institutions, pension funds and insurance companies, which you would expect to have much longer time horizons. I mean, other than the church and universities, it's difficult to think of anybody with a longer time horizon than a pension fund or uh, an insurance company. So the sort of puzzle is um, why they behave in a short-termist way. I think David's explanation was that Ex ante, uh, they would say they don't, and they are not uh, going to support. They're going to be in there for the long term. Ex post, i.e., after a bid has been made, because of the competition amongst fund managers, under, they feel themselves under pressure uh, to accept the highest offer. So there's a, there's a disconnect with between what institutions would say in principle is their investment horizon, which is long term and what they feel under pressure to do when a bid is actually on the table. So I wondered if one way one could try and uh, square this uh, contrast between the ex-ante and the ex-post is to amend the no frustration rule in such a way as to give shareholders the ability to opt out of it. Because right? at the moment it's a mandatory rule, whether the shareholders want it or not, doesn't matter. They are stuck with having to decide on the bid after the bid has been launched because that's the takeover process. So maybe one way of fostering engagement uh, between institutions and target uh, companies would be to enable shareholders to say we'll remove the no frustration rule for a period of time, whatever the appropriate period of time is. And during that period, management would be freer to engage in long-term investments uh, without the threat of a takeover, and there might be other short-termist pressures on them. Um, and uh, after an appropriate period of time, the shareholders would review the situation and see whether this was a bet that paid off or whether management had just been uh, shirking. So I respond a bit to that. I think you're absolutely right, Paul, that if, that if you were going to have a, a capacity for a frustration of bids, it would have to be adopted with the consent of shareholders, and I would expect it to be time-limited, so you would have to go back and review whether it was worth having. Now, there is, we're in, in a, an ivory tower here, so it's, it's great. Would shareholders ever adopt those in, against the background of, in the US, where they don't really understand that they have a completely different governance system, but they are fighting poison pills, although there are some forces who are trying to defend them. But generally, the tide is turning and poison pills are going. So could we reintroduce them effectively? It's, it's a real challenge and to get shareholders to agree. But the principle 
in a world of stewardship where the shareholders have all signed up to this, we all believe in the long term, you could challenge them with that and say, well, one way to achieve that is to give us protection for a period against predatory action. Then, would you really like treating them like children, isn't it? Where you take away the sweets, they can't use them because they agree that they get taken away for a period and then they come back and they can make those decisions. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree, Paul. I think that's a, it's a terrific idea. Um, but I, I, I do think William's caveat is an important one, which is, I think it's a great idea. I think you find many institutions that if you have them in a room on your own, would sign up to it. But whether they will sign up to do it publicly, which will in effect involve a public approval of, adopt, of allowing the boards to adopt defensive mechanisms, um, I, I have my doubts whether they'd be willing to put their, their necks on the line. But I think fundamentally it's a great idea. Uh, just... Uh, an additional point, though. One of, the, one of the moments when companies have greatest leverage against shareholders, if I can use that terminology, is at the point of flotation. So when you have an IPO and the company comes to market, it can come to market in the form it wants to come. And then shareholders have a simple decision. Do we want to buy in or not buy in? And that would be the moment when companies could, could come to market and say, look, we're a, not a startup, but we're a young company. We need time. We need protection. We're going to come with, we've got shelter approval pre-IPO, and you live with it for five years, ten years, whatever it is. Yeah. And the moment the rules don't let us even experiment with that. And, and there's, just to follow on from William there, some interesting evidence from the States where private equity companies uh, come back to market uh, with, and, and have an IPO of some of their private equity portfolio companies. And when they do so, they come to market with all the protections that you can possibly imagine. They come to market with a staggered board, which requires a with cause, uh, you can only remove the directors with cause during their term. And they typically, although they don't have to, come to market with an existing uh, poison pill in place. So I think evidence from the United States that supports that a company's coming to market would make that preference. And does it strike you? Do you have any comments on that one? Um, I mean, I was thinking of your, your example where people are selling shares. And yeah. There's not a takeover in prospect, and there may be yeah. down the road, but... I think one of the practical challenges is that, that, that within, in my experience, in investment funds, your pension funds, whatever, the, the, the actual investment professional is often quite dissociated from the, the regulatory and compliance people. And, um, and so I think you'd have to get somehow get, get across both of those if they were to invest, you know, it, it, it invest part of their fund in a, in a, in a business <coughs> that had, you know, had these kind of what they were perceived to be restrictions potential restrictions in the event that a, a bid was made for the business that they might quite like the look of given you know X years of performance or whatever. So I think I think it's potentially very interesting, but I think the details would be would be quite challenging. Um, one last comment. Just an, an equivalent mechanism we see in the States is weighted voting or founders' shares or other protections where you can bring a company to the market and you the people who have established it give it that space because they can effectively control the outcome of M&A and other transactions, even if they've disposed of their economic interest. That gives companies that platform for growth, which we don't see here. And, and here we have a completely opposite attitude that says you may not have those structures. If you want to have a premium listing, you may not have <coughs> You may not protect the interests of the company against the market because the investors hold the whip hand. So, yes. I think there's, there should be a fundamental difference between startup and young companies on one side and established companies on the other hand. And this, 
uh, so it's important to view, is done better basically in the United States. Uh, I think in Britain, too many companies get listed too soon. There should be a way to keep them off the market and with its uh, <laughs> difficulties for a longer period of time. Beyond the, the stage you mentioned, when the company was beyond its initial stage and had to go into the second stage. If so many startups get lost at that early stage, it's really uh, negative for the national economy as a whole, in my opinion. Uh, of course, uh, it's also from this viewpoint, it's easier to have special rules for young companies than for established companies because people and public opinion will easier condone things that are possibly not what everybody likes because it's a startup company, therefore the amount of investment in the company isn't terribly relevant. Um, I think it's also worthwhile to look more at certain formulas which the American um, industry, particularly uh, Silicon Valley, have developed over the years. There are lots of companies that have been able to obtain huge sums, even for American, uh, uh, let alone uh, European companies, uh, for shares that were not listed. And the investors knew they weren't going to be listed for a long time. Nevertheless, as long as the companies, the startup companies, the young companies, and that could be five, six years at least, as long as they were able to show sufficient growth and development, they were able to get more and more money from institutional shareholders. I think that, of course, solves the problem. Because if you're aligned with your institutional shareholders, then there's no pressure to sell. And you, you may even save some money by not listing. Uh, maybe it doesn't work for every company, as I said, in Silicon Valley, which, of course, is very much the play for the market. There are a number of uh, cases where it's been pretty successful. And I think a medical company is also something which in America would be considered as a potential uh, company with big future and uh, uh, um, more than average growth. And therefore, uh, they would have uh, an easier life finding money that is not, does not uh, demand uh, an early listing and early marketability of shares. We will go with one or two questions and then, and then we'll get some comments. Yes, at the back there, yes. Thank you. Uh, just a, a quick comment on the behavior of institutional investors. I think, yes, one issue is, is benchmarks, but when you're an active fund manager, you know, in deciding which company to invest in, you often have to do evaluation. So what's the upside from taking a position in a company? And the upside usually means you have a a range, right, from what's valued today and what's the potential, and then you develop a target price. In an M&A context, regardless of whether these investors professing to be long-term, once a premium hits a certain level where you hit the, the target side, they will sell. Because, and if they don't, they will then be criticized for exhibiting poor sell discipline. And so it's almost like an automatic reaction. And I think that contributes to it. So if you see really high premiums, everyone will exit. And, and that, I think, accounts for the behavior that you observe in the market. Okay, let's have one more question, Jonathan. Slightly contrarian, Jonathan Rickford. Um, it seems to be very extraordinary that we criticize a transmission mechanism, as David called it, 
for working too well in transmitting messages. And so what we debate is making it work less well, which will result in it transmitting good messages less well as well as bad messages less well. The mischief surely is in the messages. Okay, let's have some comment on that. Uh, and I agree, I agree with both, actually. I think there is, to, for me, there is no criticism of investors and institutional investors responding rationally and economically to the situation they're in. It's because it's a rational position for them to take that I am sceptical about the behavioural solution that says, well, just don't do it, because that's not economically rational for them, and therefore they will go on doing it. But that's the message's point, I think. The, the, the market's message is a message about value and what's economically rational for that shareholder. <coughs> it's not a message about what creates long-term value in the company. So that's why interfering in the transmission of unhelpful messages is maybe something worth looking at. I think there's a wrinkle in that story. I, I agree with you. And which is some chairs say because of disclosure rules, they are actually unable to convey to shareholders why a particular bid is actually undervaluing the company. Do it with sufficient detail as to convince shareholders that actually, actually you may want to raise your target price and not sell out it. I mean, I, I completely agree, John, that the mischief is in, in the message, and the message is being transmitted extremely well, and that's generating a problem. But then, of course, the question is, what can you do about the message? And, and is if the message is being generated by certain structural factors in the marketplace, to what extent can you change those? And I think my view is that it's, it's very, very difficult to change some of those things, and it's probably a lot more difficult than it would be to actually change some of the rules that we have uh, on, on the PowerPoint. And even if you could address some of those structural drivers of short-termism, I think some of the things that, John, that, that Simon's referring to uh, simply could not be addressed at all. So... Um, the mischief isn't the message, but I doubt you can actually deal with that, in which case um, we need to think about what we could do alternatively, and that's where I come out thinking about the ways in which we could empower the board. Edward Crown from One Leg Up, for my sins, I'm another practicing lawyer. It seems to me there's an irony that um, there is a lack of patient capital and public markets in the long term and to create a safe harbour for businesses to, to, to develop the way that they should um, and this isn't a, this isn't looking at anything other than one individual company that company may be pushed into the arms of, of private equity and taken off the markets to actually deliver and then come back to the markets and, and perhaps that does create a challenge as the a more holistic view of the public market from from Craig to Grave of the company. Yeah, I mean, I'll make a comment on, on quite a few of the points there. Um, I, I operate you know, med, med tech and diagnostics. The same business listed in London compared to NASDAQ in the US would be valued three times more in the US um, you know, in terms of market cap. Uh, so, so why is that? Uh, I think one of, the reasons, one of the reasons that is because most of the investors in the UK are generalists. So if you take a, a, a company, you know, a, a fairly complicated, you know, medtech or biotech business, and you look at the, the, uh, the shareholding, you'll find most of the shares are held by the standard lives, the legal and generals, and you know, the, the, the standard pension funds in the UK. And it's really hard, I think, for these funds to really understand, get a really in-depth in knowledge of 
these high-tech businesses they're investing in. If you look in the US, they'll be held by funds which are specialists in medtech, biotech, pharma, and healthcare. And these are, you know, these are healthcare professional investors, and they really understand the story. And so I think there's, there's an element of understanding the business and understanding what it means when you say the business did this in this half year, or we, we, we have to tell you we've, we're investing money to be into this market, or we're delayed in that market. And, and I think it's very hard for journalists to, to understand that. I'll give you an example. We were on the, on the, the road with the Rise of Discovery uh, the first quarter of this year, um, which I said is a, is a gene editing business. It's really cutting edge um, medical technology. And we went to one particular fund, and, and the, 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 the broker called the fund the next day and said, what do you think? And the fund said, you know what? We understood one word in 10 of that whole presentation. <laughs> one word in 10, you know, we went way over our heads, it's so complex. And so they said, okay, so you're out. And they said, no, 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 we're in for 10 million. <laughs> <laughs> you invest 10 million pound in this business. And, and you have to ask yourself why that is when you, you probably say, I don't understand it, but I want to be in it. And it's probably about this crowd mentality we talked about, you know. Well, if I'm not in it and everybody else gets it, all the guys, you know, the other 10 managers in the same, you know, that I compete with all get into it, and it's the next thing in sliced bread. I'll be heavily criticised because I'm the one guy who didn't jump on the bus, you know. So there is an element of that sort of bus mentality. So I think one of the things that would help from the UK viewpoint is if, if some of the funds probably spent money, a bit more money on, on, on analysts or in-house expertise to really dig into the investments they're in and really understand it. And understand, then, you know, then it's up to them to understand why £5 a share is not enough for this business today because you really have that gut feeling about where this is going and not that, you know, well, I don't really understand it, but, you know, approving sounds pretty good to me. And I think that guy in the fund next door is going to be out, so I better be out because I could be left, you know, I could be the guy that misses out here or whatever. Could I just he's suggesting there might be greater fees for intermediation. They, they, they need to actually spend more money on that fund management. Well, I think, you know, I think it's hard to be a journalist. You know, when you do your own show in the UK and you go to a fund and, you, and, you, and, you, and I'm presenting on medical diagnostic business and maybe there's a mining company in the results time, there's a mining company in before you, and there's maybe a retail <coughs> business coming afterwards. And it's really hard, you know, if you've got that under, and, and you know, you're supposed to be on top of it and, and you get the reports, everyone, the analyst reports are piling up on your desk. I know there's, I know there's support in there, but... It's much easier if you're, you know, it's, and, you know, it's quite interesting because mo by the time we sold the business, a lot of our shares ended up in Switzerland, and the Swiss made a lot of money on Axis Shield. Why? Because they're, they're specialists in investing in healthcare, medtech, diagnostics. They understood the story. They really understood. So when we said we're going to go and spend money in the US, and the P&L went backwards and the share price came down, they saw it as a huge opportunity. And, and when we finally sold the business, a lot of the profits went to Switzerland because these guys saw what a bargain it was and they, they bought it from the UK funds who were quite happy to, to sell. Just staying in the, in the healthcare area for a second, could I ask panel uh, what conclusions, if any, they drew from the AstraZeneca affair? Because AstraZeneca is a company which has a terrible record, uh, but it's got a reasonably, reasonably uh, a, a new management which seemed to persuade the shareholders that it was worth staying with. I just wondered what you felt about that. I mean, it seemed to me that that was a case where, where shareholders, enough of them anyway, were prepared to take a long-term view, and, and, and uh, even though the price... Uh, I don't know, what, what do you think about that? 
Could, could I just quickly yeah, answer yeah, that question sure, and then sure. move that as well? Just, just on Ed's point about the, the, the holistic nature of, 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 of the marketplace, well, that sort of reminded me of a point that Ian made when he was talking about the possibility that private equity can come in in some instances and provide that long-term finance. And, and, and the extent to which what we're describing here is a problem is a function of whether or not there are other long-term mechanisms for making investments in those companies. And if private equity is operating as a substitute in many instances, then of course it's not as big a problem as we might think it is. Although of course many companies will respond in a short-term way to avoid being overtaken, to be taken over at all. So I think we do need to understand this holistically. And I don't think we have a strong enough understanding of that. Um, just my sort of two penneth on, on, on your point, uh, Jeffrey. I, I think you're right when it comes to the shareholders' outlook in AstraZeneca. It certainly looked that they were more committed to the long term. Um, because they certainly they, they appear to be holding back from saying we're willing to sell our shares. I think it's tough to draw any conclusions from that because if shareholders are saying publicly we are in it for the long term, um, that the media attention was so clearly focused on them in that deal it, that they would be subject to some rather serious criticism if they had jumped ship in relation to that company. But most companies are not faced with that level of attention, so I, I wonder whether or not we can draw conclusions on shareholder behaviour from, from that transaction. I, I tend to agree with that. I think there was, as I recall, one created institutional investor who said the industrial logic doesn't work. I will not be accepting. I'm not pressuring the board. That was, it stood out, absolutely stood out against the rest, which was all about relative value. And while there was a piece of the AstraZeneca case which was there's no sense in this. We don't, they don't add anything to our business. Our business is fine. The other element was quite a lot of robust promises about what's going to happen in the future. And shareholders saying, okay, well, we'll see. Because after all, they, they take a, a long enough term view to say, well, this, this may go away, but there may be another opportunity. So it was complex, but it comes back ultimately for most shareholders to a question of, where's the value, and how we're going to get the most value out of this situation. And I suspect a lot didn't think that was the end of the game, or not necessarily. Yes, yes. Um, I just want to understand a little bit more on the impact of, let's say, getting rid of quarterly reporting. So getting rid of it and then going to a semi-annual doesn't seem like exactly going long term. But if you could achieve it so that we actually get rid of it altogether, how do you think the behavior will change in the market? Is it just going to six months? Is that it? Uh, well, we, we are going to get rid of the requirement for the quarterly update in for UK listed companies with the IMS going, as we call it. My expectation is that companies will continue to report on the same basis they do now because investors have got used to those updates. And once investors are used to updates, uh, I think they are hard to persuade not to have them. Uh, this will, I suspect, be discussed on a, on a different seminar, but my, my view is that periodic reporting, even quarterly, is a better system than our system, which is of instant reporting of anything that is material, because at least it gives companies enough time to establish the message that they want to give we also have a lot of rules in the UK that discourage companies from making long-term forecasts public. We have a crazy system, absolutely crazy system that, that prevents companies 
from being open and honest about what they think they can do over the next five years. And companies hide behind those rules not to provide those forecasts. And why do shareholders take a short-term view? Because they get no long-term information. They get nothing better than the next quarter or maybe the rest of the year. And so they're benchmarking against that and they're not given... We don't have a, a proper disclosure system that says what we want to know is what companies' long-term plans are. What are they going to do? What are the real risks about achieving that? What are the assumptions they're making? You, you can design a system that is geared to long-term investors. If you look at the information that a private equity holder wants from his companies, it's nothing like the information the public markets get. And yet we want, we want the public markets to compete with the private equity for long-term finance for our businesses. I would have very uh, uh, one small additional comment, which is I completely agree with everything that William said. And come to our next seminar, because <laughs> in, that, in that next seminar we will address disclosure. I think actually one quick comment. I think quarter reporting is a much tougher for smaller businesses than, than bigger businesses. It's a much bigger task on the, the CEO and the finance director that they got through this quarter and you immediately start to start running the numbers to forecast the, you know, the next quarter and, 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 and what can we do about getting to the right numbers. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's a much bigger uh, task on a smaller company than it is on a bigger company to have to... Well, I have a small question directly to Ian, and then maybe a little statement. The direct question is, so why don't you list it in the NASDAQ if the price is so much better? You know, you're, you're free to move, um, and then the market will grow perfectly. And <laughs> um, I, I won't get into the details, but certainly when you, when you list a company early on, then some of the initial investors have significant tax advantages to list on AIM rather than go to okay. the US. The you know, enterprise investment schemes or whatever are very much aimed towards taking the company onto AIM rather than to the US. Um, but, you know. Um, so they compensate for the. the yeah, but there areas. are. This is a good to say, you know, there's companies like uh, Oxford Immunotech who will be listed in, 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 on NASDAQ and have done very well. You know, if you have a business that is. You have a business which is very much orientated towards the US market, you do much better by listing on NASDAQ than you might There's no doubt about that. Well, so my, my, my bigger statement was that as a journal to, to defend British capitalism. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because especially for, I think Mike is very right, you should probably split between smaller companies and bigger ones. But for larger companies, there's a very good reason why we put them under pressure, because they tend to follow. We've <coughs> seen this in the 70s, 60s, 70s in this country and in the US, that if you protect them too much, actually they get complacent. Even Tesco, you know, got very complex because it was too big to be taken over. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a value for large companies to keep them on their toes. And I, I think we should be very careful to take this punch back away. For smaller companies, I think, Mike, as I said, Michael is very right, um, we might want to protect them a little bit more, given that, you know, venture capital market in Europe is so much weaker than in the US where it's much easier to, to raise capital so you have to move to the market earlier as a small company. I think it's a very good point actually because having, having been CEO of a listed company on the main market and having been chairman of a company listed on AIM, from a regulatory viewpoint there's no, there doesn't feel like there's much difference. It's probably an opportunity there to to um, uh, you know, to, to create an environment more on AIM which is, which is more supporting the smaller companies. But I also take that point there. It's ha happening less now, but as we tend to just to 
you know, list a company, just get it out there and list it, and then he, and then he, 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 he just become he just cast a drift with no liquidity, and so uh, I think I take your point that a lot of companies have been listed way too soon, but maybe we could create more environment on that, you know, regulatory environment around there and make it more conducive to smaller companies, differentiate from the Tesco's of this world. Just. If I can respond a little bit, and sort of in my dream world, is when I'm running everything, it's going to be fine. There are, other, there are other mechanisms you can use to achieve that. So you, it's all connected. So if you have to look at the mechanisms for changing directors. So directors who, particularly at the moment, are exposed to annual re-election on a simple ordinary resolution of those who turn up. That tenure is very, it's very weak. And so you could say, well, in this world, so everybody's expected to come out publicly with their five-year protections, so you're Tesco and you've got your five-year protections, at the point where it's clear that they were not well-founded or that there's no execution to deliver those, the board can be changed. But you don't have to change the ownership of the whole company in order to redirect the company and to incentivize management to do things properly. So I would challenge you in saying that the, that the market for control is the best way to influence boards to make the best long-term decisions. Yeah, I wonder if I could just ask you one question. So, I mean, two points. First of all, for me, you're right, there are other mechanisms that impose accountability, but I still think we need to put those other mechanisms also on the table and thinking about whether those other mechanisms are also driving short-termism too excessively. Um, and Tom, I agree, there are consequences of taking the punch bag away. And, but what we've done for so long in the UK is continually focus on the punch bag and focus on accountability, the importance of accountability, telling stories like you were telling. And what we haven't done and still aren't doing, in my opinion, to, to the right extent, is think about the consequences of the punch bag. And there are significant economic consequences of those. And we need then to balance the punch bag with those economic consequences, which we've not been doing. Sorry, Jeff. No, I was just wondering, going back to your, your share price falling and all that, um, uh, and maybe this goes back to a conversation that, that, that we had, were there people who were selling these um, shares because they didn't want the profits to go down, they were, or at least they included, the pension funds and big institutions, were they? Because I, I think you, I remember you saying to me that when it came to the biz, these UK institutions yeah. were actually quite um, yes, supportive. Yeah, yes, yeah. and it was actually, the detail was that it was, it was some of the, it was, our, our shares were about 70% in London, 30% in Norway, and it was some institutional Norwegian shareholders who, who um, were targeted quite a hostile and were the first people to accept the bid. So you looked at the stuff. So, I mean, it, it, you know, you could say that if it had been 100% yeah. British institute, yeah. uh, you, you'd still be running out of shit. Yeah, but they weren't, they, weren't, they weren't very slow to follow, wouldn't they? Of course, before they, they, we, we learned from the other side who'd accepted the bid, so we didn't get any. Can I ask you another question? You know, yeah. I've got here on the spotlight. So, would it, so, one of the options that I mentioned on my slides was the possibility of raising the acceptance threshold, which yeah. would be conditional upon you saying whether or not you approve the bill or yeah. not. And you could raise that to 66 and two thirds, you could raise yeah. that to whatever you want. Seventy-five yeah. percent. Yeah. Would that have made a difference or not? Um, I doubt it. I, I, I don't think it would really. I think once you, once there's a momentum in sale and, and people get the message, you know, you could be left as a, you could be left as a as a, as a shareholder, you know, a holder of, 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 of shares in a private company. Um, once people get that message, and um, it's very hard to stem the tide. And I think it's a dangerous thing to stem the tide as a board as well, because you know, if you if you're advising people not to accept the deal when 
and when there's clearly momentum, then I think there is a danger that you can be giving some pretty inappropriate advice to your shareholders. So um, I didn't get the impression that if we moved the threshold, that we would have stemmed the tide, I don't think, really. Yeah, and I wonder whether in, in the room of the people when they're planning their approach yeah. and they've got their strategy, it would I think it would impact on the way they approached it and the price they pitched mm. to come to you when they knew there was a prize to get yeah. to get your recommendation. And so it might not have made a huge difference in money terms. If I'm if I'm imagining I'm in that world and I'm trying to execute a deal, it's pushed up the point a zone of uncertainty. When you're bidding, what you're trying to get to is that price which is not comfortable for, for the board to say it's not it's too little. It needs to be enough. Once it's enough, yeah. then you're through the door and you can see where you go. But if it's too little, then you can just say no. And knowing it's got to be enough, if the board had that little bit of extra, you've got something to give you. At the moment, what have you got? You've got the shall we give you due diligence or not, and faced with a bidder who doesn't really care, yeah. which some don't, then you've got very little in terms of what you can offer with your recommendation. Because your recommendation is really all about value, because it depends on the independent financial advice, so it comes back to the price. So what you've got is, is you've got a prize, and you can sell that prize for something. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that it's going to fundamentally alter the value equation. In other words, it's not going to bring non-financial metrics into the, the equation very much, but it's at least going to give boards something to bargain with. Okay, I think we've perhaps got time for one or two more groups. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, the observation regarding the role of private equity, I think, yeah. they can play quite a helpful role, and it could be very good for the company and even society. Because fund, traditional fund managers and private equity firms are both agents. I think there's one loser in this scenario, which is the ultimate investor, which is, let's say, the pension funds. Because they will pay a much higher fee to the pension fund, to a private equity firm, for, for being the intermediary to build a business. And I think there's that debate. The, the second point, I was wondering if you have what we thought is perhaps to change the shareholder base. So agents are more subject to short-term pressures because their performance are, they need to prove themselves at regular intervals. Should you draw maybe a degree back and go for the sovereign wealth funds or the pension funds themselves or in-house management, which may be less subject to shorter-term performance, or even resort to other tactics like Unilever where you say we're not going to give quarterly guidance because we want to steer our shareholder base a little bit so that it's more investors who are interested in longer term issues. Perhaps we should just wrap it up in a second, but any, any final comments that from through? No, I mean, if you're in a position to steer your shareholder base in a way that you have you know, long-term committed shareholders, then a lot of these problems go away. The problem, of course, is the ability of many companies to be able to steer their shareholder base. And, you know, to, just an aside, we, when we went out with the rise and did our IPO, you know, we, were, we were looking at to be significantly oversubscribed, and, and I was looking at the list of companies, and I was saying to management, well, you know, ah, I don't think we really want these tracks in, and, and, and management were really quite shocked, because they just, you know, management, uh, as a new IPO, they see a lot of people who are fans of the business who want to put money into the business, and, uh, and it, it, was, it, was, it was quite interesting to have a discussion around, well, 
you know, some of these people, some of these funds here are probably not going to be as supportive as you think. You know, I think there's, there's more of a short-term element around this. And so that was an interesting debate with my experience to be sitting there saying, well, I'm going to want all this money because I'm not really want all this, whereas management just said they've done very well. They've, they've got, you know, commitments for a certain amount of cash and, and, uh, and, and you know, we're, we're away. We're at the races. So that was a quite interesting discussion to discuss with management that not all, not, not all, it's not all just cash. You know, some of it comes with different expectations from the investors. Anything else you want to In conclusion. In conclusion. I, I think there's a real problem. I think, I, I really think there's a problem. I think Professor Kay identified it that the public equity markets in the UK do not support long-term growth. Some of these ideas could be, looking at the whole system and the different things that you could tweak, could be ways that you could make that work. Otherwise, I think, you end up saying these, the long-term growth is going to be, be dependent on private equity, and so maybe you just have large mature companies on the public markets, and you've got very little in the way of public market support for growing companies. I think that would be a real shame, and I think it's worth the effort to try to look at these structures and see if there's something that can be done. Okay. I mean, I, I, I agree with that, um, and I think the problem will not be solved, as I think John Kay thought it could be, by focusing on shareholders and encouraging shareholders to act together. Um, and I, I doubt we can change the message, as Jonathan suggested, so therefore I think we need to, to look to empowering the board in some way and to swimming against the political tide. I think that's inappropriate. Okay. So I think we Thank you very much to the speakers.